Good morning. Welcome to uh, Redeemer Community Church and Sauna. It's a little warm in here. Look at it this way. We can receive God's Word and exfoliate all at the same time. So it's a good thing. My name is Dave. I'm a deacon here at Redeemer. Uh, My wife and I also lead a CG on Monday nights. Uh, Tomorrow night is Mexican night. So if you like you some taco meat, come on by 6.30. We'd be happy to have you uh, join us. It's good to see uh, the many survivors of yet another Little Five weekend. As I drove in today, I noticed there was kind of a crowd gathering on the stairs of the Justice Building in jail, waiting for business to open, I assume. You'll get it. Just stick with us here, okay? Uh, Congratulations to our riders. I didn't go to the race uh, this weekend, but I have been to the race. And my uh, chosen hobby is rock climbing, as some of you know. And I would much rather be hanging 600 feet off the ground by a small crimp hole than be in the middle of that pack. Yeah, when they're going around the uh, bend. So congratulations to all of you. January 11th, 1973. A dark, dark day in America. A day that changed America in the face of our culture forever. An idea had been brewing for over 75 years, and on that day, by a less than unanimous vote, eight to four, the decision was taken. The American League owners of Major League Baseball voted to institute the designated hitter. I can see you're as upset with this as I was at the time. Now, most of you were not alive in 1973. Most of you who are baseball fans, and I apologize for a moment for those of you who are not, but if you are a baseball fan, you grew up with the designated hitter. It's been 43 years now, two generations of baseball fans. It is so pervasive in the game, not only in the American League, but at the college level and below, that a casual observer might ask, when did the National League decide to let pitchers bat? I mean, this would seem to be a terrible idea. But on that date, what happened was this. The game of baseball was changed forever. No longer did a lineup consist of nine players. Now there were ten. One of whom who would pitch only and not bat. And another who would bat and not play the field or pitch. That is the the what of what occurred. But more important are the implications, and they are dramatic, and they are bad. (laughs) Can you see where I stand on this this issue? No longer in the American League, in the late innings in a close game, would a manager have to make the agonizing choice of taking out an effective pitcher in order to put in a hitter to score runs. Now, there would be players who would ride the bench only to be occasionally interrupted by an at-bat and then go back to their pistachio nut chewing. (laughs) How about this? The rules of the game now are different depending upon which stadium you play in. How can that be? But worst of all, perhaps, is the extension of the careers of overaged, overweight, can't play defense, baseball players, <laughs> most commonly with the nickname Big Poppy. Sorry, Mike. He's going he's gonna to be late for that. 
what's the point of all of this? Now, if you're a baseball fan, you're probably sitting there going, this is very interesting, Dave. Thanks for sharing. (laughs) But what does this have to do with Paul's letter to the Romans? And if you're not a baseball fan, you're like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. What does this have to do with Paul's letters to the Romans? First of all, anytime you use a baseball metaphor, it's it's spiritual. (laughs) Okay, you question this. The exist- baseball is an apologetic for the existence of God. The great Bob Costas once said, baseball is proof there is a God because man alone could not have invented such a perfect game. <laughs> right? Here's the point. We human beings are by nature interpreters. We need to give meaning to the events that occur around us. Okay? Sometimes we do this collectively. Planes get thrown in, are flown into skyscrapers in New York City, right? Presidents resign. Supreme Court decisions, Roe versus Wade, Obergfell versus Hodges. Do you know which one that is? That's the Supreme Court decision last year, right, that effectively legalized same-sex marriage. There were a lot of interpretations. There were a lot of attempts at applying meaning to that. But most of the time, we interpret events that are much more personal to us, Yes? The death of a loved one brings all kinds of questions and interpretations. And these events don't always have to be sad or negative, right? We are on the cusp of another graduation, right? The class of 2016, Indiana University, high schools all over the place. You all are going to do some interpreting, some finding of meaning in that, correct? In our body here, we have, I don't know, six, seven, eight couples who have been married for less than two years. I'm looking at some of your faces now. How is the interpreting going? How is the finding meaning going? Yesterday, my beautiful wife, and I don't know where she is. She's probably in there somewhere. She's up there. Beautiful, passionate, extraordinary wife and I celebrated 28 years of marriage. You better applaud. And to you young married couples, and to those of you contemplating such, I want you to know, we're starting to figure things out. (laughs) A couple more years, I think we're going to have a conclusion or two made. So the baseball metaphor at the beginning was this. Now, not so much now, but certainly in 1973, baseball was America's pastime. And when that event occurred, it was a big deal. And those of us who are baseball fans... needed to figure out what it meant. How would it affect the game that we love, right? So events have two parts. They have the what, what happened, but also the what does it mean? What is the implications, right? And there is no more significant event in the history of mankind than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, correct? And so think about what Paul has been doing so far in Romans. He's been telling us a lot of the what, correct? In, in the middle of uh, chapter 1, we started getting a lot of the what? Our desperate situation before a holy God. He spent two chapters describing our sinful state, our separation from God, how we are not worthy to be in, present, in His presence. And he said, thing, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good Not even one. A pretty desperate situation. But then the news got better as we went on. Paul described to us 
how out of his grace and mercy and his sovereign plan, God sent Christ to pay the price of our sin. How he lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we could deserve. That's the what. But also throughout, as we have been exploring Romans, he has been attempting to tell us what it means. And in particular, you'll, if you're paying attention, and we hope that you are, he's been addressing some of the letter uh, to the Jewish believers who are in Rome. Now, Rome is probably composed, and there's a lot of conjecture amongst commentators, this Roman church that Paul wrote to, who is he writing to? Primarily, probably Gentile converts to Christianity, sure. But there were also some Jewish converts, and there would have been those who, uh, what Scripture commonly describes as God-fearers, people who were not of Jewish ethnicity, but yet knew the law, had, had, come, had come to follow the faith, and, and so forth. And as we see throughout, he is attempting to assist them in giving them meaning. So if we look back to chapter 3 in the first verse, he asks this question. He does a lot of this through questions then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Paul is attempting to address these people as to the meaning to their lives of, of this good news he is conveying to them. In verse 9, he says, what then? Are Jews any better off? And verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Certainly, if you are a Jewish believer, you're going to have some challenges of putting this great news of Jesus Christ into context. And so he's helping them. You, we, if you're talking, if you're Paul talking, have been God's chosen people for centuries. How does the coming of Christ impact that? Verse 29 of chapter 3, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also? This has got to be somewhat shocking news. And then we've seen in chapter 6 over the last three weeks, okay, we're saved by grace. What's the role of sin in our lives now? Should grace abound? Can we go on sinning? And we learn, no, that that's not the proper response. It even means that we don't necessarily understand what it means to be a a follower of Christ. So now we're getting to a, a slightly different issue. Here's the question for the morning. What is the place of the law now that Christ has come and inaugurated this new covenant? Now, this is very much related to what we have been talking about, right? We've been talking about sin. What place does that have under the new covenant? What place does that have now that we live under grace? Well, what is the law? Is the law not a description of what sin is? Well, well, certainly. Okay, so yes, this is kind of an extension of what we've learned in chapter 6. And yes, the law shows us what sin is, that sin still matters. So the law still matters, but as we shall see... The law is more than just a description of sin, especially to the first century Jew. If salvation is by grace through faith, the first century perception of the law and the place of the law and the role of the law is not what it was once assumed to be. So chapter 7 begins to explore this idea. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to be looking at chapter 7, the first six verses. I purchased this Bible right at the beginning of the year because I wanted something a little lighter than my study Bible. Ironically, when I set it down, it just opens to Romans. Go figure. Romans 7, the first six verses, Paul writes this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of who you are in your word, and not only that, for how you have revealed how we're to react to that. What are we to do? What is the meaning of what you have revealed about yourself? Father, we just ask for hearts that are receptive. We ask for um, minds that are open, and we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Before we go on, we need to set a little bit of context. Let's put ourselves in the position of a first century Jew in this particular case, or any first century person familiar with the law. Paul has has not quite addressed the law yet. In verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And to that first century Jewish listener, his ears would have perked up, and then Paul kind of just let that go. Well, he's returning to it now. He's going to address this issue of the law. So let's, let's understand what was the place of the law in the first century at the time he's writing this. And we're going to do that by going to Psalm 19. And we're not going to read the whole thing. There's 14 verses. But this is a very vivid description of the place that the law was held in by these people. And if you have an ESV Bible that has Uh, the editor's subtitles, you'll notice the subtitle to Psalm 19 is, The Law of the Lord is Perfect. So we're going to read starting at verse 7, and the psalm attributed to David says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, when I taught U.S. government, I kept three documents on my desk at all times. A copy of the United States Constitution, a copy of the Declaration of Independence, both of which don't resemble much of what goes on in Washington right now, and a copy of the Indiana Code, a book about this thick that had every law from the state of Indiana in it. And for examples, I would refer to that on occasion. I would read to my students this law or that law. And at no time did I finish reading one of those laws and set it down and say to myself, man, that was sweeter than honey. Man, that was good. Or we're kind of in the middle of of, of tax time, right? April 15th was Friday. 
But do I understand correctly? We have, I hope we have till tomorrow to send in our stuff because it was on a Friday or I'm going to jail, one or the other. <laughs> but I don't look at the IRS tax law and say, capital gains tax revives my soul. <laughs> Rejoice the heart, O ye single-payer health care statute. Right? Doesn't it seem odd for these kinds of things to be said about the law? But yet that's how the people of God view God's law. God's law is sweeter than honey, more desired than gold. Another psalm that, that addresses this embracing of law is Psalm 119. We're going to read all of it today. Uh, some of you know. Some are right. 179 verses. We're not going to read it today. Longest chapter in Scripture, right? Longer than many books. But the goal of that psalm, which is very poetic, very structured, very amazing, is that this, is that is to enable God's people to admire His Word and His law so strongly that they will work and pray hard to have it shape their character and their minds. It tells us that the person who keep God's instructions will find that His way will more and more reflect God's own character. Psalm 119, 11? 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I will not sin against you, right? And the attributes in this psalm that are given to God's law are the same attributes spoken of God himself. God's law and God himself are, are, are equated. It reflects that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he freely and fully forgives his people when they confess their sins, that he loves his people without limit, and therefore that through his law, God guides the faithful in the way of life that is genuinely good and beautiful. Psalm 119.97 exclaims, Oh, how I love your law. In the New Testament, what, what is Jesus' view of the law? In the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, of course, he's using the capital letter law here. He's talking about the entirety of Old Testament Scripture, but he's also talking within that. Of the, of the Mosaic law, he goes on, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus' view of the law? He came to fulfill it. It's not going away until it's accomplished. By doing it and teaching it, you'll be called great in heaven. The law is perfect, revives the soul, enlightens the eyes, causes the heart to rejoice. It is perceived, we could have gone into more detail here, to be the way to the kingdom of heaven. That is the place of the law, as Paul writes his letter. Now, imagine yourself, you're, you're a member of the Church of Rome in the first century, halfway through the first century. A meeting has been called, a letter has arrived from the Apostle Paul. You've never met this gentleman. Boy, boy, do you know about him. Because when he wrote this, he was on his third missionary journey. He had already written both letters to the 
church at Thessalonica. He had already written both letters to the church at Corinth. He had written a letter to Galatians. Certainly there have been people who have come to your church who have met Paul, who know Paul, who have worked with Paul. Paul's written you a letter. You have a seat. The, the elder of the church begins to read this letter. And you get to where we are right now. What has Paul said so far about this law that revives the heart that is sweeter than honey? The law reveals sin, says Paul in chapter 3, verse 20. The law condemns the sinner. The law brings wrath. The law was added so that trespasses might increase. God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. Righteousness comes by faith and not this precious law. Our sinful passions, as we just read in verse 5, are aroused by the law. Compare that to what we just read in Psalm 19. Revives the heart. Reveals sin. Causes the heart to rejoice. Condemns the sinner. Enlightens the eyes brings wrath. What happened to sweeter than honey? What happened to more precious than gold? What happened to, oh, how I love your law? Who the heck is this Paul guy slamming our law? What is he doing? Now, keep in mind that the people receiving the letter are Christians. They are followers of Christ. They do have a concept of this kind of change that has occurred because of what Christ has done. But nonetheless, this is going to be kind of a shock to their system. As Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears wrote in their book, Doctrine, in describing kind of the shift of the place of the law, they said this, this was a cataclysmic shift in belief that was only considered possible because a new epoch had been ushered in by the resurrection of Christ. Now, with all that in mind, the place of the law prior to Christ, what Paul has said so far, what does he say now in our text? Verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, we're going to pause just for a minute here, and I'm going to give you a two-minute lesson in Aristotelian logic pretty excited, aren't you? That big word just means of Aristotle. Aristotle, great ancient Greek philosopher, one of the things he contributed to us was a method and a system for correct reasoning. And that method and system has been used by thinkers, theologians, philosophers ever since, right? From Thomas Aquinas to R.C. Sproul, they just drip with using this method, not of wisdom, so we're not going against 1 Corinthians and using earthly wisdom, but a way of deciphering wisdom. And by the way, when applied to God's Word, this worked very well. And you'll see that Paul does this constantly. So here's our quick little lesson in Aristotelian logic, okay? I'm going to give you a syllogism. Here we go. Do we have the syllogism? There we go. All cats are meat eaters. All tigers are cats. Therefore, all tigers are meat eaters. Are you with me so far? This is a syllogism. We take one or two premises of fact... And then we draw a valid conclusion from it. And this is how we can think through knowledge and understanding. This is also very handy, by the way, when you're discussing spiritual things with your non-Christian friends and they challenge you. This works great. Now, 
quick example of this going terribly awry, all right? All cats are meat eaters. All tigers are cats. Therefore, all tigers are dogs. Two true statements, yes? But it is invalid because the conclusion does not follow naturally from the statements. By the way, this is the kind of logic that most of the people use who are running for the United States president. <laughs> Except for your guy. Your guy is, or girl is fine. The others use this. Okay? So this, this argument makes no sense because the conclusion doesn't follow. One more quickly. All cats are meat eaters. All dogs are cats. Therefore, all dogs are meat eaters. Now, the, the conclusion is actually valid. But one of the statements is false. Here's the point. If the premises are true and the conclusion follows, the logic is sound. Now, what's this have to do with Paul? Well, in verse number one, Paul is putting forth a premise. He is saying this. The law is only binding on a person while he is alive. This is his statement. This is his statement of fact. He is saying that death is the universal invalidator. The law only applies while we live. And this applies to relationships, anything that is established and protected by the law. And we're about to see, as you saw in the text, we're going to talk about marriage. Marriage... Certainly today in our society is a relationship that is established and protected by law. Business partnerships. So when one of the partners dies, when one of the partners in marriage or in business dies, the relationship is over. It's no longer binding. That's what Paul is is about to say. So his first point is law is for life and it's annulled by death. So let's go on to our illustration that he uses. He says this, for a married woman, and he's using an illustration that's going to be very familiar to his readers very understandable to those he's writing to. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So here's what Paul is doing. As he develops this syllogism where he's going to describe the role of the law in our lives, He's defending one of his premises. He's saying, okay, I'm telling you, the law only applies to the living. And here's an example that that proves it for us. So marriage is a binding legal relationship. So he's taking the premise and saying, here's what it looks like. Here's what I'm saying. Here's so you'll understand. But in this one, in this example, the death is not to the person, but to the spouse. All right? Death affects more than the person involved. It affects the spouse specifically. So when the husband dies, the law no longer binds. And then he uses this interesting example. He says, we're going to take two women. This woman remarries. This woman remarries. This woman is an adulteress. This woman is not an adulteress. What's the difference? The death of the husband. Bound to the law, not bound to the law. So, premise one, the law is binding only while we're alive. Paul extends this premise to marriage. Now, if you're paying attention, or if you read the text along with us a minute ago, you know that he's going to carry this over, this concept of death, freedom from the law, and marriage. So now, how does this apply to God's law? What is death? What death is involved here? What are the implications? And is the designated hitter a good idea or heresy? Just seeing if you're still with us. 
All right, now verse 4, the heart of this. Likewise, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Likewise, like the woman who is married, bound to the marriage law, we were bound to the law of God. And like that woman, only death frees us from that law. So, so how does this happen? This can be a difficult verse, right? Premise two, you have died to the law. What does that mean? Now, if I'm sitting here, and I just wandered in off the street for the first time coming to church, or I'm a guest of somebody, and I'm an unbeliever. First of all, I'm a little confused about all this talk with the law. I uh, went climbing with a friend uh, Friday who is absolutely not a believer, who absolutely bristles whenever I bring up spiritual stuff, but we have a good relationship otherwise. And uh, he indicated that he had to get back at a certain time. And I said, I do too, and then I planted the seed. I've got a sermon to prepare. And he took the bait. What's your sermon on? He said reluctantly. I'm going to talk about being released from the law. Bit of a silence, but he couldn't help it. Released from what law? Well, from the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And he's silence. What do you mean released? What, you know? And we got a couple of questions in, but then he dropped it. But it occurred to me that this could be very confusing. And what about this whole idea of you also have died to the law? If I'm an unbeliever sitting here, and I'm using my good Aristotelian logic, I'm looking around going, there are believers in Christ in this room. Premise one. He has just said believers in Christ have died. Premise two. The conclusion should be I should be looking at a lot of deceased people in the room. (laughs) Correct? But this person looks around and says, I see everybody breathing. I see many of them still conscious. (laughs) what is this death that we're talking about we're talking about the death that Paul has previously described chapter 6 verse 3 do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death verse 6 we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We died with Christ when he died. Because the wages of sin is death. As Pastor Chris pointed out last week, sin will be paid. There will be death. And when Christ died, we died to sin. We died to the law with him. Paul writes elsewhere this, That for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless Christ died for my unrighteousness. He became sin. I became righteousness. And by that, I became a child of God. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God. And for emphasis, he adds, and so we are. Christ has paid the price. We share in his death. We have died to sin. While I'm still very much alive, physically, I have died to sin in him. So what does it mean that, that we have died to sin, or died to the law? It's the same as having died to sin. This is why I'm using them synonymously without even thinking about it. We have died to sin by union in Christ's death. The curse and condemnation of the law have been taken away. But there's a relational implication here too. Again, hearkening back to the marriage example. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Chapter 6, we were enslaved to sin. Now we are slaves to God. Chapter 7, we were married to the law and under its condemnation. Now we are married to Christ. We have a new relationship only possible. So the immediate purpose of dying to the law is that we could belong to him. We could belong to another. But the ultimate purpose, Paul describes here, is this. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Now we're starting to get to it. Now we're starting to get to what is the role of the law in our lives. So that we could bear fruit married to Christ. So... Through our death to the law and our remarriage to Christ, we have undergone a radical change of allegiance. We are now married to him and not to the law. The law is only binding on a person while he is alive, and we have died to the law. Now, we finish our syllogism, verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law is binding on a person while he is alive. If you are a follower of Christ, you have died to the law. Therefore, verse 6, we are released from the law. And Paul draws a stark contrast between these two conditions. Notice the wording at the beginning of 5 and 6. For while we were verse 5, but now we are, verse 6, we were in the flesh. We were victims of our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. Those sinful passions were at work in our lives, bearing the fruit of death. But now, released from the law, not freed to sin, but freed to serve. Slavery now to Christ and not to the written code. This distinction between the old and the new, the old covenant and the new covenant, was actually written about by the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before Christ. Chapter 31, he said this. Notice how stark the parallels are here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, not the old covenant, a new covenant in Christ, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the Mosaic covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, that we were not capable of fulfilling, that it was futile to try to fulfill. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make 
with the house of Israel after those days, after the coming of the Messiah, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. We will have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This great contrast, two ages, two covenants, before we knew Christ and now being united with Christ in his death. The old, flesh, law, sin, and death, but the new, released from the law, and now slaves to God. We have gone from being in the flesh to in the spirit, from aroused by the law to being released from the law, from bearing the fruit of death to bearing the fruit of God. And how has this happened? We have died to the law through the death of Christ and raised with him. So what is the place of the law? Is the law still binding? No. And yes. Aren't you glad I cleared that up for you? No, it is not binding for the purpose of justification. We are not under the law. We are under grace. No, it is not binding for the purpose of sanctification. In Galatians, Paul says this, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We become more and more Christ-like by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not by our white-knuckled attempts to conform to some written code or some written law. But yes, we are bound to the law, not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. We are no longer under the law as our master because now we have Christ as our husband. The binding is in a different sense. It's a different motivation. Okay, so we have, remember the two situations? Woman who remarries, woman who remarries. Adulteress, not an adulteress. Living an obedient life, living an obedient life. Under the old covenant, it was out of fear, out of trying to do it ourselves, under trying to achieve a right relationship with God on our own. We obey now out of love for our husband, out of grace, out of response to what he has done. Different motivation. So, the designated hitter and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, both ushered in new eras. That is a ridiculous comparison. I can't believe I just said that. And this was announced by Christ on the night before his death. We're going to move into our time of communion now. And on that night, the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, said this, take and eat, this is my body which is for you. And in the same way also he took the cup and he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We are no longer under the law but are under grace. The law no longer condemns us. We are justified before a living God. But the law, we love. It is how we conduct ourselves. It is how we become more Christ-like through the work of the Holy Spirit. Here at Redeemer, um, we break off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine as your conscience leads. The wine is marked with twine, so be sure you get the right one. It's kind of a shock to the system if you miss that. 
This meal is reserved for believers. This is for those who have taken Christ, who have accepted the covenant, who understand the terms and have decided to follow Christ. So if you're not a a believer, we ask that you refrain. Don't worry, we're not going to point at you or anything. Um, But if you have questions about the law, pastors will be in the back to answer those questions. Uh, There'll be a diagram up front. Best of luck following it. Just follow the people next to you. Um, You'll figure it out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings to us. We thank you for the hope that we have um, in Christ and what it means, this rich meaning you are, you are providing to us in Paul's words in Romans, uh, free from sin, free from the law, but yet free to live and serve a life that is pleasing to you and honoring to you and doing it out of love and gratitude and, and responding to the work that you have done. Uh, Father, may we go out today and, our, and have our lives reflect this, just reflect the love that we have for you and our desire uh, to grow closer to you and be more like you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.